All right. Um, this is a, uh, an oral history interview with Dr. Bill Roy for the Robert J. Dole Institute of Politics at the University of Kansas. And I realize I don't have my own microphone, so we'll start with that. All right. Uh, as I said, this is an oral history interview with Dr. Bill Roy for the Robert J. Dole Institute of Politics at the University of Kansas. We're in Dr. Roy's home in Topeka, Kansas, and today is Wednesday, April 18, 2007, and I'm Brian Williams. Dr. Roy, uh, start giving me a little family background. Okay. I'm not a native Kansan, and there was a billboard out in western Kansas that said Bill Roy is an interloper a, uh, and so forth. Announcing I wasn't a native Kansan. Uh, uh, I'm from Illinois and uh, grew up in central Illinois. Went to a small Methodist college, Illinois Wesleyan, and then went to Northwestern to medical school. And did all those things rather quickly. I graduated from medical school when I was 22. Uh, I grew up on a farm the first 10 years of my life. One sister who's four years younger. My dad died at the age of 42 in 1941 when I was 15. And uh, we had some cows to milk and so forth at that time, but I knew very well I didn't want to work hard as a farmer works. <laughs> so I uh, had already planned, essentially at that time, began to plan to go to medical school. Uh, I came to Kansas. Oh, the, the family background, uh, the uh, Roy name is French Huguenot. It goes back to the, uh, the original immigrant about 1710 or so. Uh, and uh, the, my uh, grandmother also came from my family, had been in the United States a long, long time, going back to 1684. And they were sort of very important people in a little town, if you know what I mean. They had the biggest of the uh, stones out in the cemetery and uh, that kind of thing. So anyway, uh, I came here, as I said, in the United States Air Force. I'd finished my residency in obstetrics and gynecology at City of Detroit Receiving Hospital. I finished my internship prior to that time at Evanston Hospital, and as I stated, went to Northwestern Medical School. Uh, we knew I knew I was going to go in the service because I hadn't served during World War II. I'd missed that uh, due to the fact I had four operations over a three-year period when I was in high school and immediately thereafter, so they kept flunking me on my draft exam. So uh, it finally worked out, as you probably know, all physicians of my generation in essence, we're in the service at one time or another, so they, I knew I was going to go during the Korean conflict, so I enlisted in the Air Force. I got married early in life. I was 21, a junior in medical school when I got married. Uh, we waited a little while to start a family, two to three years, uh, and then we began having children. Essentially, it seemed like every year, 1949, 1951, 1952, 1954, 55, and 59, so six children. Uh, we had two children, three children, excuse me, when we moved to Topeka to take up my duties at Forbes. Uh, the uh, man who was my consultant out at the base was a very busy obstetrician, a gynecologist in town. So one afternoon, Jane and I were sitting down having a cup of coffee about August of 1954 and saying, you know, sometime in the next year we're going to have to decide where you're going I'm going to practice. And 
this sounds like a story, but it is a true story. The phone rang, and it was Dan Dappen, and Dan says, Bill, you know, I got more than I can do in this town. Would you consider going into practice with me? I had originally thought about going back to Bloomington, Illinois, which is a beautiful area, as you probably know, if you like farms uh, in central Illinois and State Farm Mutual and schools and so forth. And uh, But then I decided to stay here and practice with Dan. I tell people that I had too many children and not enough money to make any other decision. So we practiced together until 1964 when a third physician joined the practice. And the story from there is one of several things. Right, right. Um, tell me briefly what you served, where, where did you serve during the Korean conflict? Just here. See, I was sent to Forbes Air Force Base, which was a strategic air command base, a SAC base. And what were your duties? Or a physician, of course, mm -hmm. and uh, I did obstetrics and gynecology. I had two young men helping me, and uh, we had lots of people to take care of. I think we had probably 30 deliveries a month or so, and uh, a fair amount of surgery. And So it was a very good experience because I had finished a charity residency where I had literally seen everything. In other words, we had so many sick patients, but it was a good time to put it into practice, so to speak. Uh, as being the responsible person on the base. The base commander called me in when I first got there and said, you and the pediatrician are the two most important people on the base because if we can keep the wives happy, we've got a lot better chance of keeping the airmen happy. So uh, that's what my duty was for, so to speak. And a lot of the men, they were shipping out to, flying out to... They were flying out. Uh, the, uh, uh, we had a bomber wing which brought in B-47s the first jet bombers that year. And then we had a reconnaissance wing, which was, I don't know quite what the plane was, it was a four-engine plane, and it was mapping the world. And one plane got shot down near Murmansk in Russia, another one got shot down over the China Sea because I don't think there was any question there were places where they shouldn't have been. And the Chinese and the Russians didn't like it very well. So uh, I do remember with some sadness uh, knowing the wives of the airmen who were involved in those particular actions, yeah. It's interesting because, of course, when you hear a doctor serving during the Korean War, you naturally think of mass yeah. <laughs> units. Yeah. So your duty was very different. <laughs> yeah. Yes and no. You see, City of Detroit receiving hospital was like a mass unit because that was about a 400-bed hospital. They got all the emergency from about 2 million people. So we had four full-time residents in the emergency room and eight full-time interns. So it was like MASH at its busiest 24 hours a day. So I've always enjoyed MASH. I still watch it occasionally. And I uh, understand the irreverent humor that is sort of a safety valve, so to speak, for people who are working with that, those kinds of circumstances. Now, where did the law degree come in? That was somewhat law later. Law degree came in rather, uh, uh, in 1964. Uh, I said to Janie, I think I'll go to law school. Now, Washburn at that time would let you take one course, two courses, three courses. Now you have to go full time. And so I took a single course, we took a single course in personal property. A friend and neighbor taught it. And Janie said, well, if you're going, I'm going. So we went. And fortunately, we lived about a mile and a half from the law school. And the law school was about a mile and a half or two miles from my office and the hospitals where I practiced. So anyway, for the next six years, we took about six, seven, eight, nine hours. In other words, about a half load. 
and those uh, represent the number of hours in class. And uh, Jane took magnificent notes. We did not have, of course, cell phones, but I managed to have my office call me out about 10 minutes into each class <laughs> so I could get back and go to work, so to speak. But they did take, uh, they took uh, attendance, and you had to have a, either 80 or 90 percent attendance to get credit in a course. So I showed up at the beginning of the class, got called out. Jane took wonderful notes. We studied together for about a week uh, before final examinations, and both managed to get our law degrees. <laughs> Uh, and incidentally, for what it's worth, to show the passage of time, Jane took the bar in 1970, and only four women took the bar that year. And, of course, this has changed greatly. Now there are more women in Washburn Law School than there are men. I always tell people Jane finished in the top three among the women who took the bar that year because one failed. <laughs> so we know she finished in the top three. But anyway, that was a, it's, a, a, it's an idiotic thing to do retrospectively because we had all these kids. You see, in 1964, they were ages 5 to 15. But Jane's mother was here in town, and even though she was a leading real estate salesperson, uh, she was an immense amount of help as far as plugging uh, little things that needed to be done. And then, uh, in addition, we had some household help, but minimal one or two days a week. And uh, so we were able to go through that way. And uh, she had had this disease, myasthenia gravis, but it uh, had a long period of remission, and she did very well. I never practiced law. Uh, she then practiced later, after we came back from Congress, as working for the courts as far as uh, enforcing child support laws. And she enjoyed doing that. And then she was, I say with pride, the first woman to serve on the Kansas Corporation Commission, which is our public utility commission which is a three-person board, so that's a highly responsible position. Were you looking for the law degree to be a kind of ticket somewhere else? Uh, I didn't think so at the time, although I've always had a very great interest in politics. A friend of mine who was almost as, as quiet as anyone could be in a class, and I finally got talking to him 40, 50 years later, he says, I can remember the first time I met you, you had a win with Wilkie button. In other words, I came from a Republican background. I came from central Illinois where everybody except Adley Stevenson, who was from Bloomington, which was uh, uh, 15 miles or so from where we farmed, uh, were Republicans, or at least it seemed that way. And, uh, but I was also very interested in international affairs. And uh, you know, later, Wilkie wrote One World, and Wilkie was definitely a person with a very large vision as far as the entirety of the world was concerned, so I was enthusiastic about it as a freshman in high school at that time. I was going to ask you about your family political background. No. Uh, not much to politics talked at home, uh, and uh, I remember uh, they wanted my dad to run for the school board, and he just didn't quite think he wanted to do that. That was as close as we came to elective politics at home. And you say your father died when you were 15. Yeah, he died when I was 15 years of age. Was there someone who served as a kind of mentor for you in terms of uh, the future, what you did? My best friend's dad uh, certainly treated me like a son. He had a, one son only, only one child. Uh, he was born in Alsace-Lorraine and was, of course, French background, got married shortly after World War One, and came to the United States. And uh, so he meant a lot to me. I worked at the local Piggly Wiggly 
uh, groceries and so forth. Uh, and uh, the man who ran that was always pretty darn good to me as far as that goes. Mm -hmm. So uh, I had a couple male figures when I was a teenager, I guess one would say, after my dad, dad died. Uh, now, I'm correct that uh, Bob Dole was also a graduate of law school at Washburn. Yes, correct? that's right. Was he uh, considered a, a, a major alumnus at the time you were there? Or, or uh, I don't, I didn't never uh, thought of it or heard of it so much in that uh, aspect of the thing. Washburn's always, uh, Washburn is what you'd call a regional or local law school, as you probably know. It happens to be located in the capital city, which gives it some advantages. And then we have the University of Kansas. And they've always been rivals as far as the governor, the Washburn graduate, or a, UK, a Kansas University graduate and so forth. But I don't remember that so much. In the 1960s, I was a Republican. Uh, I was busy with the medical society for some reason because law school, I guess, didn't take up enough of my time. And... Uh, I remember in 1968 giving Bob Dole a check for $2,000 from the Political Action Committee of the Kansas Medical Society. <laughs> and so, you see, I had no anticipation I was going to be running against him uh, six years later. And, uh, but as far as interest in society generally and international affairs, uh, I've always had that. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, before we were on camera, Jane and I have traveled pretty close to 100 days a year for the last 16, 17 years since I, uh, since I retired in 1989. So, uh, so we've always had that interest. That and our kids have that interest. I just, uh, my one granddaughter is getting back from six weeks in Cambodia, Thailand, and Vietnam. So we've always had a rather broad perspective. We also had a lot of exchange students. We had uh, four from Mexico who were siblings. We had a Japanese woman who was one of the most magnificent people I've ever known in my life who will be visiting us next month and visits us every couple of years. Uh, she was with us, I think, 65, 66. And we had a German student whose parents were busily helping people get out of East Germany when he was here in 68, and uh, whose uh, parents were told that uh, he had been in a severe automobile accident and might be dying, and they called us. And apparently it was one of these political things that people were angry at the parents and wanted to punish them and knew he was in the United States. And uh, so, but uh, yeah, that just gives you an idea that we were interested in those things. So what motivated your shift to becoming a Democrat? Uh, civil rights, I think, would be the almost complete answer. Uh, and Vietnam, to some degree. Uh, I uh, did not run as an anti-war candidate in the sense that I was lighting candles and marching and, and, uh, and standing on lots of platforms, making lots of exclamatory remarks uh, when I ran for the Congress. But I did say, you know, I'm, I said I, I'm not the anti-war candidate because everybody is anti-war. But, 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 we better get ourselves out of there pretty soon uh, approach. But the people that I had that really supported me greatly and made my congressional race the greatest upset in the House in 1970 uh, were people primarily from the civil rights movement. Uh, we had a uh, so-called executive committee, which maybe only met twice or something, but 10 Democrats and 10 Republicans, included the Brothers Menninger from the Psychiatric Institute here, included at least five people who were worth at least $10 million, including the man who founded Volume Shoe, uh, Payless Shoe Stores. 
and so forth. So we had quite a variety of supporters, and uh, it helped. In the first race, I beat a three-term incumbent who had had 68% of the vote in 68, which was two years before. And I was the second Democrat elected in this congressional district, if one generalizes a congressional district as being Topeka, because Topeka has always been the primary town, the center of population in whatever congressional district that was enumerated. So what were the circumstances that committed you to running for the, for the House? Uh, I, I mean, I know that yeah. you say the reason. I, I, I said civil rights, but uh, I was in a town in Kansas, I'm not sure what town, for the Kansas Medical Society's annual meeting. And uh, I don't talk very well about this. I darn near choke up. I went back to the room, and there was a newspaper on the on the uh, bureau, which Jane had put there. It said, four kids killed at Kent State. And uh, I told Jane that evening, that, you know, so this has to stop. And, uh, so that's what moved me to run for Congress. And I told her and I told my partners, you don't have to worry about it because I won't get elected. You know, our life's not going to change. Instead of taking my summer vacation, I'll take the vacation in the fall. And I didn't campaign until October. And uh, we just had a marvelous group of people, and I won pretty big. But my th uh, two associates and I had delivered 20,000 babies among the three of us. And, I could, and this was 18 counties in that district, but I could go anywhere, and somebody would walk up and say, I am Josie Smith's mother, you know, and you delivered my grandson, and so forth. And uh, so we had a, a network in that respect. Uh, we had a church network. I'd given two lay sermons, uh, one of which was on reconciliation and the war. And, uh, and uh, excuse me, reconciliation and civil rights, really. I ended it with James Baldwin's quote, end of the quote from The Fire Next Time, which isn't a very friendly quote. And uh, it was given over the local station, which goes to the entire state, WIBW. And it was also given in four churches. So we'd done, I'd done that, that kind of thing. Uh, I couldn't sit still, I guess. And what about picking up the skills required of a candidate? <laughs> I, think, I think one either has them or doesn't have them, in a sense. Uh, I remember we were going to go someplace. I picked up a very talented politician by the name of Paul Pendergast. No relation he wants you to know. He's now deceased to the Pendergast of Kansas City, but a good Irishman with eight Irish grand, great-grandparents. All eight of his great-grandparents either were from Ireland or were born in Ireland. But anyway, he was a great politician. And we were going someplace, the two of us, and we stopped to get some gasoline. And he says, Bill, get out of the car. He says, you've got to talk to that man. You've got to talk to everybody that's in that little store and in the gas station and so forth and tell them who you are and what you're doing. And so uh, that's <laughs> what one had to do. Uh, we used a couple little things that worked well. We uh, put a small ad in the weekly newspapers. Again, I'm from rural background in a small town. And uh, Dr. Bill Roy speaks. And we had probably 200 words on one subject or another every week. And, of course, those things get handed over and over and over. And so those helped. But I suppose the thing maybe that helped most, although I would like to think it wasn't perhaps, the thing that really made the opening, though, is Chet Mize, who I beat, nice man, was in the midst of a miserable divorce. And I don't think he had the stomach 
for campaigning, and he virtually didn't campaign. And, of course, we've had this same thing happen in this district this time, as you probably know, not that Jim Ryan's in the ver- in, in going through a divorce, but Jim Ryan, a five-term Republican congressman who nobody thought could lose, was defeated because he didn't campaign. He just didn't see fit to do so. And, uh, I don't know about other states, but in Kansas, you at least have to show up. You have to show the flag anyway. So you say you really didn't start campaigning until October for a November election. That's right. I had took the month of October off. Uh, there was an exception to that. We had something over 60 coffees in Topeka in places like this house where as many as two people showed up and as many as, many as 30 or 40 people showed up. And, again, we're, I'm practicing medicine, so we took the hour from 11 to 12 or something for, uh, you know, they invite your neighbors in for coffee and so forth. So we saw an awful lot of people that way. And uh, I had a coffee committee that had a couple junior leaguers and a couple people from the church and two black women. And uh, um, Did you run in the primary, or how did that happen? As a Democrat in Kansas in the second district, where you've had two years of representation, you don't have to have a primary. Uh, I, uh, the, uh, I entered the race without anybody knowing it except my partners and my wife and the, and the district chair, in a sense. And uh, I changed registration the day before uh, I uh, uh, filed. And uh, I, uh, uh, like I say, it just, I, nobody anticipated anything was going to come of it. Uh, so, but I did, uh, well, what I was going to say, Paul Pendergast was in the law school class with me. He'd formerly worked for Governor Dockey, who'd been a very successful four-term governor, a Democrat. And so I said, Paul, let's go out to the country club and have lunch sometime. And we did after a day or two. And we talked about politics. He says, do you want to learn from Congress? I said, I've been thinking about it. <laughs> he says, okay. He says, we were just talking the other day. We'd like to find some sucker with maybe as much as $20,000 so we could at least print some bumper stickers. And... Uh, have him run in the second district because we got Jim DeCourcy, the lieutenant governor, who's running in the third district, and we're going to put all of our money and all of our manpower, woman to power, into the third district. So I went into it with my eyes wide open in that respect. But it was great fun. You can tell how effusive in a sense I am talking about it now, how well it went and what a throw it was. At what point did you begin to think, hey, I may, this may be real? One week before election. We had nobody come in. We didn't go to Washington for a dime. There's no way to get a dime, you know, when you're running against the guy that's at 68% leading, led the Republican ticket two years before. Uh, and, uh, but uh, Bert By came in to talk in the third district, and they said, well, we'll have him over for lunch in the second district. And again, uh, we had, you know, the lunch sold out of 250 people. And, 24 hours or something. And I remember staying at home putting on some cufflinks and saying, you know that we're going to win this thing. And uh, that one week before is when I realized it. Now, excuse me for, for not remembering this. You were running against a Republican incumbent? Yes, who, as I said, was a three-term incumbent who had 68% of the vote two years before. So uh, there's no sense in trying to get money outside the district. We spent 84000 20000 was mine, 
20,000 was Bob Brock's, 20,000 was some of these other people I mentioned, uh, mostly in $1,000. We didn't have many small gifts until late when we began to sell pins and things. And uh, anyway, that's uh, about where so, it came from. So when you arrived in the house, you were, you were a celebrity before you ever got there mm -hmm. in the Sims. Uh, I think it was Jack Germond and uh, Nelson of the Los Angeles Times. We had one of those parties, you know, where there are several hundred people and everybody's having a drink. And they called me over and they said, who in the hell are you and how did you get here? You know, because you weren't on any of the lists uh, where the uh, congressman might change. And uh, so, yeah, and uh, it worked out very nicely because I wanted to be on the Commerce Committee, I found out. I, I didn't know this, you know, I was, I was like uh, Robert Redford in the Senator, what we do, do we do next? But I knew that I had another campaign, which is the 15 members of Ways and Means, who at that time determined what committee each Democrat sat on. And uh, I went in and talked to each of them. Uh, and uh, Martha Griffiths was in Congress at that time, who was a well-known woman when we didn't have very many women. She was on Ways and Means. And I didn't hear her, and I didn't hear her. I knew Jim Corman felt like I could talk to him from California, who was on Ways and Means. I called Jim up. I said, what's going on? Excuse me. Wait a minute. We've we got to get the microphone You want to get that and ask? I think it must be one of my grandchildren. Okay. I, I called Jim and asked him what was going on. And he says, Martha Griffiths says you should get this assignment. And when Martha Griffiths says somebody should get something, it sets her heels, somebody's going to get something. <laughs> so anyway, I guess it was she who thought that because I was a physician and because I had a health subcommittee, which today deals with Medicare but also dealt with uh, uh, National Institutes of Health and items of that kind, that I should be on that committee. And it turned out to be an absolutely great committee because Paul Rogers, who was a Floridian, uh, pretty conservative Democrat, uh, was the chairman, and he worked committees the way committees should, should work. In other words, when we turned out legislation from 9, 10, or 11 of us, however many, many were in the subcommittee, each, everybody had little ownership. And when it went to the full committee, you know, we spoke more or less with one voice, the same way as far as the rest of the full house was concerned. So it was a nice experience. So can you summarize for, for me um, your three terms in, in the House? Only two. Or, oh, sorry, two. Uh -huh. Yeah, they worked very well. And uh, I did not necessarily have any great will to leave. I figured I might serve 20 years in the House, and that would be a nice career. Uh, as I said, we had a, an excellent subcommittee, and uh, Jim Symington was on it, Richardson Pryor was on it, uh, Jack Kynes was on it. On the Republican side, we had lots of good guys and no gals, I guess. Uh, and uh, a, a pretty good full committee. It's commerce, as you know, handles something like 40% of all the legislation in the House, if you look over a, a period of time, anything that moves. And uh, so it, it, it had been a very good experience. Uh, I happened to pick up a young man who I met over at KU who had finished medical school. And he turned out to be an absolutely brilliant legislative assistant. Uh, he right now is, is uh, acting as chief counsel on the Subcommittee on Health of the Ways and Means Committee with Pete Start, for example. Uh, he was also in that position with Weinberger in the past. He worked with Kennedy. He's been executive vice president of the Commonwealth Fund, et cetera, and chairman of the Department of Health Policy at 
George Washington University, so he's had a distinguished career. But he went in with me and he immediately learned who the players were in healthcare. And it became sort of a process of him bringing people through, deans of medical schools, <laughs> presidents of associations, people from the Institute of Medicine and so forth and so on. So uh, we were looking at a lot of things. In 1971, Medicare and Medicaid was about five to six years old. And we were anticipating we would have universal health insurance. It was just a question, was it going to be next year or maybe we would be have to wait as long as 1980? So we were looking at the entire health care system, uh, rural health care, how do we get doctors and other health professionals into rural areas? How do we get them into the inner city? Do we have enough of X, Y, and Z? Uh, what can we do to stimulate the medical schools to turn out more family physicians, et cetera, or primary care physicians? So uh, we really were the center on that particular thing. As far as the Congress is concerned, I think almost instantly, including Kennedy. Uh, Paul Elwood, who was the guru behind health maintenance organizations, was immediately in our office. And we wrote the Health Maintenance Organization Act, which was a great act, but you can't stop things that happen like the Reagan Revolution when they essentially gutted it and, changed, and turned it over to insurance companies. But anyway, uh, the bill was written almost word for word. And uh, I, wanted, uh, uh, I wanted to put it in, and I went to Paul Rogers, and I said, Paul, I'd like to have you put this in as the chair of the subcommittee. He says, let's put it in with your name first and my name second. So it was very nice of him. It doesn't have my name on it because it took a while and it went over to the Senate and they made it Senate Bill 1 with Mr. Kennedy as the lead author, which is neither here nor there. But uh, we, were, we had the satisfaction of, that, of being able to do that kind of thing. Uh, as you know, Richard Nixon was our last progressive president. And he had talked about HMOs. Elwood had talked to him. He had talked about uh, universal health insurance, comprehensive health insurance. Uh, program chip, as he called it, and uh, he had uh, uh, the National Cancer Act. He said, "We're going to be like Kennedy. We're going to say that in 1971, we're going to get rid of cancer by 1980, and it'll all be gone, just like sending somebody to the moon." Second. Running, so. so anyway, uh, we worked closely with uh, what was in health, education, and welfare because the people who were over there weren't trying to stop everything. They were trying to help pass legislation that might be helpful in the area of health. So it, it was a good four years. And as a Democrat, but just barely a Democrat, mm -hmm. Uh, where were you on the spectrum, did you feel, during those two uh, About 70-30. Uh, about, uh, I, uh, I always thought that I should vote my district when there was no, uh, n as long as there was no superseding interest, in other words, such as state or national interest. So when you vote your district, you vote a farm district in a sense and so forth, and you end up with votes that are usually frequently considered conservative, a few of them here and there. Uh, I was very much against the war in Vietnam. And uh, in August of 1973, we voted to tell the Department of Defense, you can't bomb North Vietnam anymore. It was a very uh, exciting moment. It came about 
which is neither here nor there, because the veterans, and 80 to 90 percent of the people in Congress then were veterans, but the real distinguished veterans, like Captain Bill Anderson, who put, ran the Nautilus under the north ice cap of the North Pole and so forth, uh, Spark Matsunaga and so forth, that said, you know, this is enough. And so once, uh, once the distinguished veterans were on board, there were two or three Republicans uh, that uh, it uh, passed heavily in. It was really in the beginning of the end. Now, one could, uh, recently somebody said, you're the one who's responsible for the three million people who died in Vietnam after we got out. I guess maybe so, but, you know, it had to come to an end somewhere along the line. So <clears throat> tell me how you got involved in running for the Senate. Uh, I didn't have any plans to run for the Senate. We had a four-term, as I said, Democratic governor, Bob Docking, who packed, smoked three packs, maybe four packs, maybe five packs of cigarettes a day, about the same age I am, was at the time, about the same age Bob was. And uh, we thought he'd make a wonderful candidate for the Senate, and he would have beaten Senator Dole because he didn't, he'd never done an abortion. And uh, he definitely would have beaten Dole. But uh, he decided not to run. I, I got to know his wife pretty well through the years. She wasn't anxious to go. And he died of emphysema three years, four years later. He didn't live to be very old. I'm not sure he lived to be 60. And uh, so that took him out of the race. Uh, we wanted a decision knowing that we probably would, we being our, my staff and me, knowing I would probably run as soon as possible. And we got a reasonably early decision. I think he decided in March and announced he wouldn't run. So we had some start on the thing. would have been nice to know, know a little bit earlier. But uh, I don't think, I, I think if you ask 10 people familiar with Kansas politics at that time how a docking dole race would have come out, a uh, docking would have won. And he was a more conservative Democrat than I, which is better in Kansas. So you started a campaign. Started a campaign. Uh, I don't know how much I can tell you about it that's really <laughs> as clear as it should be. Uh, we, uh, of course, raised money. We had some Washington consultants, which probably we could have done just as well without, although we probably might have been better off if we'd had a Washington media consultant. We perhaps could have done better on media. I'm a, not to jump too far ahead, but I'm still of the opinion that if we'd had one ad that Gary Hart had against Pete Dominic in Colorado, we would have won. And that was a very simple ad of Pete Dominic and, and Nixon holding hands up here, you know. And it said, Pete Dominic's had his chance to give Gary Hart his, and Gary Hart be, and five Republican senators lost that year. Uh, was following Nixon's resignation in August of 74 and so forth. Uh, so anyway, we did the things people usually do. One thing we didn't do, and it absolutely totally perplexes me to this day. We never had anybody run around after Dole, you know, like the macaca that, <laughs> that Senator Warner, Senator uh, Allen had in Virginia and so forth. And uh, I did not know until after the election when Johnny Apple was on one of the programs, the New York Times guy who died recently. He'd followed Dole around. And he said about two months later, he said on the air, he said, uh, Senator Dole, when I was with you, we were going to Catholic high schools, and you were going to the saying to the classes, just before you left the stage, go home and ask your mother how many abortions Bill Roy's done. We didn't know that was going on. 
and uh, we could have done something to counter it. Maybe not much, but something to counter it. Uh, so the uh, owner sort of chuckled and said, well, it seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> and of course it was. It was an excellent idea. Uh, but otherwise, the campaign, uh, I, uh, you know, both of us were in Washington. We didn't uh, make too many joint appearances. I remember the first time, because abortion is, you see, I, I, I may overemphasize abortion. I don't think I overemphasize as far as the Dole Roy campaign is concerned. In other words, there's no question in my mind I would have beaten him by 50,000 votes without that. I think maybe the only day in 1974 I could have lost was Tuesday, whatever, November, the whatever it was, that particular day, because on the Sunday before, the conservative churches and the Catholic churches had been leafleted on Bill Roy's abortions. And uh, my friends, my Catholic friends said, you know, Joanne and Jim down the block came up on the af Tuesday afternoon and said, you know, we voted for Bob Dole, and now we feel horrible. <laughs> but it was just that kind of a phenomenon. It was, and it was out. Uh, so uh, I emphasize it pretty heavily, as I said, regarding the campaign. I emphasize it more heavily as far as what the Republican Party is today. In other words, I think it is not too much of a stretch to go from that campaign to Iraq because the Republican Party adapt, adopted the Christian right, and I think Iraq is a product of George W. Bush, who is the Christian right. I don't think many of our Republicans up to that time uh, were truly that. Some were, such as senators from Oklahoma and so on, but uh, no one really had that position. So that's my contention. Uh, Just for the record, um, over your professional life as a doctor, how many abortions did you perform yeah. and how many deliveries I, did you make? I had over 8,000 deliveries. I may have had as many as 20 abortions. Uh, and I wouldn't have had any because abortion was illegal in Kansas until six months before I was elected. In other words, Kansas passed a so-called permissive or liberal abortion law in 1969, which became effective July 1st, 1970. So from July 1st, not counting the month I was campaigning and so forth, we were doing abortions in the hospital. And essentially everybody on the medical staff, or the OBGYN staff, was doing abortions. I think there was only one that wasn't. Uh, the law required two consultants uh, other than the operative operating surgeon. So these things came to us, so to speak, uh, certified and stamped that this person should have an abortion. Now, it's unfortunate in many senses because Topeka is a center for mental health, and many of them were mental health, and that gets sort of wobbly as far as uh, determinations are concerned. But anyway, uh, that was uh, about the number that I had done. So I couldn't say I've never done a legal abortion. I certainly had never done an illegal abortion. Uh, I had had something to do with the passage of the Kansas law. I was in law school. I wrote a law journal article, which I happen to think, I'd just been reading it recently, I happen to think it's better than I even thought it was before because I rather anticipated Roe versus Wade, in other words, the removal of the criminal law during a certain period of gestation. So uh, I was guilty, I guess, in that sense also. I don't think Bob really caught a hold of this thing early. I think he was constantly uncomfortable with it. 
and some things have developed since that time that say why he might have been uncomfortable with it, which I'm not going to get into because I have no personal knowledge of why he may have been uncomfortable. Uh, and uh, but he never he would he would more or less say, "I'm for a human rights amendment," and then he had run. In other words, he ne almost never answered a follow-up question. We did have somebody at the Right to Life convention in Hayes, Kansas, and I think it was August of that year, and Bob addressed them. And he said, you know, according to the person who was there, who I, he's in New York and I talked to in the last year, he said, uh, Bob said, you know, I really wasn't very clear about where I was on abortion and human life, that a, a fetus being or an embryo being a human life and so forth. But I was lying in the Holiday Inn last night and there was sort of a flash of light and I began to think about it, and my mind went on and on, and I know now that I will support a human life amendment. Uh, so that came along then. It had been mentioned earlier in the campaign when he and I uh, appeared before the Chamber of Commerce, I think it was the Chamber, in Wyandotte County, heavily, the only heavily Democratic county in the state, uh, relatively heavily uh, Catholic. And uh, the, the, the impact this has had on the Catholic Democratic vote is... Tremendous, as you probably know, Bush had either 40, 54, or 56 percent of the Catholic vote the last time. That's part of this whole curve that's been constantly rising, as far as Catholics being identified as Republicans, when for years they were overwhelmingly Democratic. Uh, anyhow, uh, came up there. Somebody in the audience asked the question. I thought it may have been a planted question. It didn't seem to amount to much. There was no follow-up question, and so on. Somebody said. Do you support abortion on demand or something of that kind? I said, no, I don't support abortion on demand, but I think there are times when uh, I answered as straight as I could. And then, of course, came the infamous or famous agriculture debate at the state fair, something around September 24, 1974, which we were doing on, on Dole's terms. He wanted it very badly because he was behind in the polls. And uh, we were supposed to discuss farm policy, and we did. It was a short debate, 20 at the 30 minutes. But in the 29th or 30th minute, he says, Bill Roy, tell people how many abortions you've done or something to that effect. It, it's transcribed. And uh, I got up and said, I, you know, I think abortion comes about as a result of failure and abortion is a tragedy and so forth and so on. But, and uh, after I said the but, uh, which was to the effect that there are times that it should be done legally, he said, he then shouted more or less at the audience, you heard him, he's for abortion on demand. And uh, the following week, we were on Face the Nation, uh, didn't come up. And then uh, it uh, was uh, sub rosa, it seemed like, during October. Now, we were handicapped. <laughs> we were handicapped because about half of our people with whom we worked were Roman Catholics. And they were pretty well paralyzed by the issue, and I was pretty well paralyzed by the issue because my only answer could be, yes, I have done legal abortions. And that didn't seem to be a satisfactory answer to those who were going to change their vote on that basis. So the things uh, sort of moved along. And then, of course, we got into the immediate two or three days before election. That appeared in some newspapers. Other newspapers refused it, God bless them. And then the babies in garbage cans and the text that went with it, which is a fairly accurate text because it's a law journal article. Uh, the, uh, 
I say fairly accurate because there are some, also some glaring misstatements in it. Uh, that went on the Sunday before uh, on the conservative Protestant churches, but mostly on Catholic churches. And what the result was, I can tell you very, very easily, and I can probably generalize it this way. Paxico's out here uh, west of town. It, it was in my congressional district. I carried it about two to one, let's say 200 to 100. And Democrat Bob Docking carried it two to one and so forth and so on. It was just a pretty solid Democratic vote. They voted that a Catholic church just north of Paxico. And in 1974, Dole actually got a slight majority, and uh, the uh, Democratic gubernatorial got the same heavy Democratic vote, and the woman who was running to succeed me in Congress, who ran successfully, got the same Democratic vote. So I lost 30 or 40 votes in that one precinct. We have over 3,000 precincts, and I lost this election by less than two votes a precinct. Uh, Atchison County is, is the same story. Those, those two I've offered as illustrations because Atchison County was the home base of the guy I beat in 1970, and, and I ran slightly ahead of him there, ran heavily ahead in 1972, and lost it pretty substantially in 1974. So I, I, you know, I, I can't prove it, but I, th and, but I think uh, most people would agree, including some of the press people who you've been interviewing, that I would run that race by 50,000 votes. If it had gone the other way, we lost it by about 13. Um, I read somewhere that uh, at the end of that farm debate, um, Dole was booed. Is that correct? He was booed. That was a raucous debate in a sense. Uh, things were getting pretty hot. And by the way, they ran one of these non-scientific polls there, and I was leading Dole overwhelmingly and with the farmers, of all things, of western Kansas. Uh, but anyway, uh, uh, they, they booed him when he made that statement. Uh, but there was cheering and booing going back and forth, and the crowd was fairly well split between the two of us, you know, with the hats and the balloons and all the paraphernalia <laughs> of elections. So, How did you and he part uh, on that occasion? I think he walked off in one direction and I walked off in another. Uh, we did. I don't have any great personal dislike for Bob Dole. I won't tell you abortion is not a legitimate political issue. It is a legitimate political issue. I don't think I knew it in nineteen in the early months before election as much as I know it now. But as I said, abortion equals the Christian right, equals the Republican Party, equals whatever else you don't happen to like about George W. Bush. It's a, it's a continuum, and. Uh, it's a, a great misfortune. Now, the AWOL charge. Yes, that was miserable. And I don't have that. It was a, you know, one of these tabloids that you put out, the piece of paper. It said, the only military term Bill Roy knows is AWOL. And then it had a little asterisk. And I don't know whether it was at the bottom or whether it was on the next page. It said, Bill Roy missed six votes on veterans' uh, benefits. You know, most of those were Friday afternoon votes that passed 300 to zero because the other 150 weren't there, and so forth. And uh, But the way it was put together, it made quite an impact. And uh, our 
offices around the state got call after call after call. What is this? And again, you see, 1974 is not 2007. There were uh, people were veterans then. So, so that's the only thing that I would say that was well below the belt. Uh, this, this is uh, a despicable way of discussing an issue, because those aren't the, the aborted fetuses; those are stillborns. And uh, so, uh, you know, and there's no question about those fingerprints are all over this thing. He says, "Oh, that just sort of ran along. I didn't know much about it." Bill Taggart, who was his guy in agriculture called many of my friends, some of them that he wanted uh, uh, a signature for Dole and the diocese uh, newspaper and things of that kind. So I know Taggart was mixed up in it totally. I think he was doing it full time. And uh, so, uh, you know, it, uh, he can, that, that I would defy him. To, if he were sitting there and said that, I'd say, Bob, that's not true. Who was running Bob's uh, Bob Dole's campaign? I'm not sure. I can tell you right now. Uh, he had also one very good ad, uh, one of these uh, uh, that came up in October, about the time he began to get back in the race, so to speak. And that, for whether it was coincidental or not, uh, that it, you know, the ad was running when he was getting some ground. <coughs> it was a mudslinging ad that came out of uh, New York, done by a group that had done that ad before. You know, plop, Bill Roy says he's against old people. Plop, he's this and he's that. Then they pull it off and here's this smiling countenance. And so on. That was a, a very effective ad. I can't uh, say anything beyond that. I don't think about that ad. But as far as that tabloid he had out, uh, I hate to think that he actually looked at it and said, yeah, let's go with this. So I... I didn't get shot, but I was in the service. Um, what was election night like and the day after for you? Pretty sad. Uh, in 1970, when I left the House, I said, we have scattered returns in from two rural counties north of here, and, Do and uh, Mice has 640 and Bill Roy has 640. I said, well, you know, we won. That's sort of a poll, so to speak, in a very Republican area. And we, we carried the count, and the, we were of the opinion we had to carry Shawnee County by 10,000 votes because we would lose the other 17 counties. We'd carry the other counties also. But anyway, in 1974, um, the votes came in and Bob was ahead, sort of 51 to 49, and sort of stayed that way all night. I was never ahead. There was never any places that I knew that we could get votes from that would probably change the uh, outcome. Uh, I carried three of the five congressional districts. Uh, I lost fairly heavily in his old first district, and I lost very heavily in Johnson County, which is almost impossible to reach in a sense. We had a focus group in Johnson County two or three weeks before election, and we're talking to these matrons and so forth, people that uh, are uh, uh, college graduates, probably most of them, and so forth, and they would say, who's Whitey Herzog, oh, he's the manager of the Royals. And who's Bob Dole? Oh, he's been a senator. And who's Bill Roy? You know, I think he ran for governor once, or something like that. Uh, we just did not penetrate Johnson County, and we lost it by 15,000 votes. So if you want to knock out Johnson County, we carried the state by two. 
but uh, it was uh, at uh, Johnson County uh, is still two to one Republican. Uh, sort of a strange phenomenon because a lot of them are from Missouri and are uh, people who were born Democrat till they got rich and moved to Johnson County. <laughs> so you had to come downstairs uh, to, to yeah, make a I'd concession. Give everybody speech. a hug and a kiss and say thank you for everything and go back. That's upstairs. the way the cookie crumbles, yeah. And uh, and we had tremendous emotional support. There's never been a there's never been a Senate race like it in Kansas. There hasn't been anything that even touched it. Uh, the first time when I won in 1970, we'd done something that maybe others, maybe Mises' campaign would say, well, this is a little marginal. We sent out about 300,000 invitations to come to our victory party. <laughs> and uh, we had it in the hotel downtown. We actually had a traffic jam for three and four blocks around there. And the one great joke is a friend of mine who was the vice chair of the Republican Party in this district, an obstetrician's wife in Manhattan, tells the story that she took this nice old lady to the polls, who she always takes to the polls because she always voted Republican. And when she got done voting, she says, may I go down to the bus station? I'm going to go over to Bill Roy's victory party. <laughs> and so anyway, it was. It, uh, I don't think it made a difference in the campaign and the outcome. I don't think anybody would tell you it did. But they thought, well, that's not a very nice thing to ask everybody. But we wanted everybody to come. So you then did what for the intervening four years till you ran yeah, again? You want irony? I'll give you irony. Within the week, I got two phone calls from two Catholic hospitals asking me to go on their staff, one in Wichita and St. Francis Hospital here in Kansas, in Topeka. Uh, they, uh, St. Francis, uh, I did then go on St. Francis staff and did some medical education and uh, so forth over at St. Francis for two years, 75 and 76. Well, I had four years, I guess, 70, uh, four years I was getting my paycheck from St. Francis and most of my pension. I don't have a congressional pension. You have to be there six years. It isn't like Rush Limbaugh says. You don't get the same pay all the rest of your life. Uh, and uh, most of my pension comes from the years I spent at St. Francis. And then after I lost to Nancy Casabaugh, and that was decisive. I wouldn't say it was overwhelming, but it was decisive. And it's, you know, you can't be Alf Landon's daughter in this state when two things are going on. The country's turning conservative, 1978, and the women's movement will make an exception. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, uh, I lost that. And so then I went, uh, began practicing again. And I practiced from 79 to 89. I built up a five-person practice and uh, saved St. Francis's OB department, whether I should have or not, it's another thing. In other words, maybe it makes sense to have only one in a community this size, but Catholic hospitals are family-oriented, and they didn't want to lose obstetrics. So I went to work for them uh, as a hospital employee, which made possible my retirement, to be very honest with you. And when you went on their staff, uh, what was their position on your uh, performing abortions? Well, you don't perform in Catholic hospitals. It was moot, so to speak. But that shows you that I didn't, was not disrespected by people who know health care and medicine uh, in this state, even in Wichita, which is a ways away, 127 miles. Right. Yeah. Uh, and it was quite, <laughs> quite ironic, I would say. Um, was there anything about the Kassebaum contest that uh, you... She just... <laughs> 
the thing with the Kassebaum contest is they had a primary, and she got 28% of the vote, but that was enough to win because there were five or six people in the primary. I'd like to run against any of the others, and one or two of them in particular, including uh, maybe the less desirable one been Wayne Angel, who is on, uh, has been a very defended old, has been on the uh, Board of Governors of the National Res of the, uh, come on, help me, of the, uh, Greenspan's, uh, he's been on the Board of Governors of the uh, Federal, Federal Reserve. Reserve yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. right. And he's a, quite a smart guy right. who's made, done right. very well. Right. Um, let me ask you um, just a few questions from, I picked up from various areas. You, you said at one point that uh, Dole wanted to eliminate the Agriculture Department. What, yes, what, he definitely that? wanted to eliminate because he was a slave to Nixon. And Nixon had a guy by the name of Connolly brilliant politician, for the most part, from Texas. And they decided they should have four super departments. Department of Human Resources, Department of Natural Resources, uh, Department of Defense, what was the fourth one? Doesn't make any difference. Uh, the Agriculture Department, the Department of Interior, et cetera, et cetera, were to be combined as the Department of, of Natural Resources. And Dole supported that. And, of course, it would have wiped the Agriculture Department out because it would have been just a piece of a much bigger department. And I brought that up at the beginning of the debate, and Bob never gained his stride. You know, I'm not a great debater, and I have had no background in debating. But uh, I think we had him six ways to Sunday, and he was grasping for a straw. And, and you have made the comment that politics has been his life. Yes. Oh, yeah. This, you know, in a sense, it's nice that he won from a uh, human, uh, uh, what am I trying to say, uh, sympathetic perspective in that sense. And, of course, this, you know, as far as who I am or not, who I'm not, uh, that's dependent on, on Bob Dole. It hasn't depended on me being in Congress for four years and losing a Senate race, in other words. Uh, to this day, I didn't go over. Fritz Mondale was over here, for example. I think I am no friend of Fritz Mondale, but I'd be, you know, Fritz and I have talked on things in the past, such as how do you debate Bob Dole when they had their 1976 debate. Actually, I didn't talk to him. I talked to Tom Eagleton, but it was and on behalf of him. Uh, I remember the 76 Dole-Mondale debate when Dole didn't do very well. Well, <clears throat> that's right, and uh, his undoing there was a little bit like what you have described as being a very acid situation sitting next to him uh, on the platform. Right. What was that like? Uh, it wasn't bad in the agriculture debate because, as I said, I had the upper hand. I didn't, not well. I haven't looked at the tape. I don't know how badly I faced the nation because, Bob, you sit there and just sprinkle little drops of acid on you. I understand you made $250,000 as a practicing physician, Bill. How come you're for socialized medicine when you made 200? You know, that, you can't answer all those questions. There's no way to answer all those questions where you're debating on his grounds the entire time. Uh, other things of that kind. And uh, he, uh, he can't, I was off stride, I think, for, for that period of time. Well, and, and, and you were not, at that point, um, an experienced national political mm -hmm. figure, mm -hmm. and he'd already yeah. been there. Yeah. How important was Watergate in all of this? Well, uh, the, the only reason I could have beaten Bob was because of Watergate. 
And uh, as I said, I think if we'd had one ad of him with Nixon, it would have been enough to overcome. You see, this race actually ended up 49.2 to 50.8. So you're talking about changing one vote in 100. Uh, and uh, so, uh, so, no, that uh, Bob handled it pretty well. We probably didn't hit it as hard as we should have. Uh, I suppose we were of two minds on something like that in the sense that Nixon had carried this state overwhelmingly in both elections. And there was certainly some sympathy for him. It was one of those things we felt we could overplay. Um, you're knowing your position on abortion and ex explaining it as best you could. Where does your faith in the American voter come up here? And, and, and I mean the AWOL thing too. I mean, anyone could really look at it and say, hey, wait a minute. Yeah. Uh, I guess on the abortion thing, for those, I have a great respect for Catholics and many, many Catholic friends. And you know, that was a real tough issue for them, but anybody who'd done a single abortion. And I got to be a good friend with Bob Drynan in Congress and so forth. And uh, as I said, I'd read his, one of the reasons I came down where I did, I'd read his uh, uh, writings and John Courtney Murray's, you know, I'm a damn fool because I listened to those two Jesuits in a sense, both of whom said abortion is wrong, Catholics shouldn't have abortions, but you can't have laws against abortion and not have them obeyed or you destroy, both of them were attorneys, respect for the law. The majesty of the law is gone and you're in a bad position. So that's a little complicated, isn't it? And uh, that's one of the things I wrote in my law journal article. Uh, so like I said, I can hardly, I can hardly blame Catholics. Uh, uh, it's hard for them. To, see, the interesting thing is Bob Dole will support a human life amendment. I don't know how many of them were put in the hopper in the Senate, but he never co-sponsored one, to my knowledge. So, you know, as I said, and I felt, I felt picked upon in the sense that I thought I'd done a lot of good work in the area of abortion law. And so, uh, but it's something you live with. You are who you are. Have you had a reconcilia reconciliation with Bob Dole? You'd have to ask him that, I guess, in a sense. Yeah, in a sense I have, I think. Uh, in about 1983, and I don't remember the date, that may be way off. About 83, it had to be, 84. Keith Sevillius died, our congressman from Western Kansas, the father-in-law of our Democratic governor. And I went to the funeral, and Bob was there. And I said to Bob, I appreciate the work you've done on the Finance Committee. He was chairman at that time. And they had come back and torn up some of those terribly irresponsible uh, tax cuts that Stockman and Reagan and so forth had put through in the first year of the Reagan administration. And Bob said something that uh, is different. He said, well, Bill, he said, uh, I think that uh, the fact that I ran against you sort of saved me. He didn't put it that way. He said, it changed me as far as uh, the Senate was concerned. He says, I figured out that I had to have friends, or something to that effect. And uh, my feeling on that, you know, the old Bob Dole would said, 
well, if you think what I'm doing is right, it must be I'm doing something terribly wrong. But that wasn't his response. His response was, I learned from the 74 election. I knew some of the senators, of course. Bill Hathaway was a friend of mine, for example, a senator from Maine. And Bill said, Bob Dole came back the most chastened man you've ever seen in your life. And it was a totally different Bob Dole. Uh, and uh, so uh, I think probably having come close to losing his professional life after having once come close to losing his physical life was another reawakening in a sense. We uh, rode back to Washington on a plane together once, and I don't remember the gist of the conversation, but it wasn't unfriendly. Yeah. And uh, I also appreciate... Uh, the fact that they, what they say about the 74 campaign and the window in the Dole Center is more or less accurate. You know, it, it says abortion played a role. The, I don't remember exactly what it says, but it doesn't ignore it. You made an interesting comment that you felt uh, more strongly about your defeat in 1996 when you were interviewed than you did in 1974. What, what was... Uh, I felt more in 1996 than 1975 about your defeat. Do you recall that, Steve? No, I don't recall that, Steve. I'm sorry. We're at the end of this tape. Okay, that's enough anyway, I think, isn't it? Well, I want to... All right, you were uh, telling us in the break here about uh, another meeting that you did have with uh, Senator yeah. Dole and about health care. Uh, well, I've always been interested in universal health care, and uh, probably if I had stayed in Congress, that would have been primary push. It was during the short time I was there. And in about 1993, when everybody was talking about health care and Clinton was talking about health care, uh, folks in Kansas put together what was called the Kansas Employers Coalition for Health, and put together a universal health program done by a staff and so forth that was very well done, was published in the journal of the American Medical Association. They recognized it was a good plan. And so I thought I'd like to take it back to Washington to our congressman. Of course, it was easy to do with the two Democrats, Jim Slattery and, and uh, Dan Glickman, and it was easy to do with Kasselbaum because she's always talked easily with me and I talked easily with her, and she had tendencies in that direction, if nothing more. But I wasn't at all sure I'd get to talk to Bob, so I did call over and say I'd like to at least see Sheila Burke, whom I didn't know. And so I went over to the minority leader's office, came in, there were, and I sat down for that long, and a couple people came in, and uh, Bob came out to greet them. And he shook hands with them, and then he, they were being escorted into the office, and he said to me, uh, I'm gonna, you're going to go see Sheila? I said, yes. He said, I'll be in very quickly. He said, uh, I'll stand to see these people. So he came in 10 minutes later, 5 minutes later, 15 minutes later. And we talked probably for the better part of an hour about this health program and about universal health care. Uh, and I've always thought Bob's had at least some tendencies in that way because essentially all of his health care, which he earned all of his life, of course, has been at, in, in government hospitals. And uh, so I've felt good about the talk. Uh, as I recall, we talked about 1996 and the fact that as a Republican, he might be hard put to support universal health care and uh, so on. But then, of course, he was noncommittal. Uh, Sheila's well known in the health community, of course, in Washington, D.C. A couple other things that might be of interest that we've touched upon slightly. I did, of course, have opportunities in Washington when I was defeated uh, 
Aaron Fox, the law firm, talked to me about starting a division of healthcare law in their law firm, which was big, big, big. I don't know how big then, uh, but in hundreds. And uh, then uh, I also, uh, the device manufacturers, people uh, who make medical devices, were starting their uh, association, and I, they wanted to know if I was interested. I talked to some folks in Chicago and some folks in New Jersey and so forth uh, about that. I couldn't see myself jet jetting around the world, so to speak, and going to Hawaii to attend a convention and being responsible for it and so forth, so I wasn't interested in that. I decided I'd come home and do the things I knew best. And, of course, big family and wanting to be with that family also had some influence on it. So uh, would things have happened differently if I'd been in Washington? I have no idea. They would have happened differently if Bob Dole had not been in Washington. <laughs> uh, so any notoriety I have, of course, has been as a result of his success. And I don't feel unfriendly toward Bob. Uh, I... Uh, you know, uh, I don't. I, I suspect I've lost less sleep than anybody who's ever lost a Senate race that closely. It really has never kept me awake nights thinking about it, and uh, because what's done is what's done. And uh, as I said, I don't really know whether I really know Bob very well. He's as many public pe people, he becomes somewhat of an enigma because of various reasons. But uh, certainly, he's had a distinguished career and done some good things. Uh, of course, food stamps came very naturally because we got to get rid of the wheat, and so he and, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and then, uh, of course, the dis disability work he did was pretty good work. But he was pretty much a no vote. It's amazing how conservative his voting record was through the years. I just want to go back to the meeting that you had with him about health care. Um, the matter of the 74 election never came up in that No. Uh, and uh, I don't think we ever discussed the 74 election. You know, why did you do this in Hutchinson, or why did you publish that? We, uh, it would have probably inevitably been confrontational. As you were running for the Senate, uh, did you have a, a, a vision of what you might want to do in the, in the Senate? Well, as I said, <laughs> universal health insurance, really, you know, this is... It's hard to quantify the misery that we have in this country because 47 million people don't have health insurance or people don't go to the doctor because they don't want to have to pay for it and they know they can't pay that and pay the rent too. So I think this, uh, this would have... I don't think there's any domestic stride forward that can be greater than passing universal health insurance. And I did mention... Uh, uh, I did have the opportunity... I was made a member of the Institute of Medicine and the National Academy of Sciences, so I sat on a number of their committees. In fact, I was on their council, uh, primarily because I was not from the East Coast or the West Coast, and most of them are, and they, <laughs> they needed somebody from the Middle West. But it was work that I enjoyed immensely, and uh, so the opportunities came my way. But uh, There's another thing you haven't mentioned, and that is your service uh, on the Kansas Board of Regents. Yes, and that was an honor and something I enjoyed doing very much and uh, on the Board of Regents of Washburn, too. So uh, I've had lots of opportunities. And uh, like I say, it's been a good life. we got six children, all six of them still married to their original spouse, and we're talking about anywhere from 13 to 30 years. 
and we got ten grandchildren and two great grandchildren and good health and lots of good luck. So I'm I'm not I'm not sad in any sense. One of these times I'll hit the wall. I know that, but for now everything's fine. Should we end on that note? I think so. That's a good note. Thank you. How can one be old enough?